Hi, you're listening to Walkley Talks with me, Helen Sullivan. This year, Storyology invited local and international panelists to discuss, who else, Donald Trump, and in particular, why journalists fail to see a Trump win coming, and what Trump means for the media. The expert panel you're about to hear from is composed of Emmy winner Tanya Mosley, senior Silicon Valley correspondent for KQED San Francisco, Pulitzer nominee Damien Cave, Australian bureau chief for the New York Times, Walkley Award-winning cartoonist David Rowe of the AFR, and Walkley Award-winning journalist Lee Sales, anchor of ABC's flagship current affairs program 7.30, and former ABC US correspondent. This panel is moderated by Tori Maguire, editor-in-chief at HuffPost Australia. Tonya, what the hell went wrong last year? (laughs) How did everyone miss the yarn of the century, which was Donald Trump's support was so much stronger than everyone thought it was? You know, if I had the answer for that, really, I think we're all still processing it in the United States. We've had lots of discussions as journalists and just as laymen on how we could have gotten it so wrong. But I, I do want to say, actually, I don't think that we necessarily got it wrong. I think that we underestimated uh, those that would come out in numbers to vote for Trump and his support base. Um, Damien, after, a couple of days after the election, your um, executive editor, Dean, wrote a note to readers um, that said, did Donald Trump's sheer unconventionality lead us and other news outlets to underestimate his support amongst American voters? That question, I mean, it, he didn't provide an answer in that note. Do you think it's been answered now? No, I mean, I do think it's in some ways it's a rhetorical question, I suppose. I mean, I think for a lot of journalists, Trump was a candidate like they'd never seen. And if you think of people who've been covering campaigns every four years for a long time, I think there was a struggle to sort of figure it out. Um, but I also do think that even as we sort of got wrong, the degree of support that was there, everyone, first of all, got it wrong. It's not like mm. half the group got it right and half didn't. Um, and I also think that there was, you know, let's be straight here, he didn't, he didn't win the popular vote. He won by sort of a hair's breadth. And so the degree to which we got it wrong, um, I think is still questionable. Are there things that we can and should learn from the process? Absolutely. Do I think journalism has gotten better since? I think so. So do you think it was a breakdown um, in the way the media itself was operating in that it wasn't listening to people? Or do you think that there was, it was driven by voters themselves being unwilling to um, share their voices? Unless, except at the ballot box? I mean, I think to some degree it may have been, you know, and if you think about the election prior to that, it was sort of the election where big data and sort of polling became very, very common. And I think to some degree a lot of journalists sort of fell in love with the possibility of data being able to tell us where the country was heading. You know, one of the things I think the New York Times really started to think deeply about was that monitor on the mobile feed that said sort of, you know, Hillary Clinton's likelihood of winning. You know, Journalism 101 says you report what happened, you don't predict, and so I think we had a lot of internal questions about whether the prominence of that was as important, was valid in that concern. So, I mean, I do think that's part of it, but then the reality is people didn't tell pollsters a lot of times what they were actually gonna do. In my own family, I have many Trump voters who didn't say a word until afterward. And so, you know, I do think that was more common than people Do you know why? Like, have you spoken to them about why they didn't say beforehand? Well, I think that there was, Some people were undecided until the last second. I think some people felt like they were already being judged prior to going into the ballot booth, and they felt like it wasn't going to do any good to kind of have that conversation. It was their own private decision. Uh, I mean, some of the Trump voters that I know feel like even now after the election, they're reduced only to their vote, that their entire humanity has been reduced to simply their one decision to vote for this man. And so, um, 
you know, I think that there's like an, an ongoing process of digesting and kind of working through this in the country. To touch on what uh, Damien is saying, uh, I was working in Massachusetts at the time in Boston, and after the election, we found that there was one particular county where the majority of folks who lived in that county voted for Trump. It, it's, it was in our listening area, and yet we had not been there in almost two years to cover anything in that area. So we had no understanding of this community, the nuances of the people who live there, and very much depended on polling, as Damien said, and other fo forms of data to really come up with maybe the folks, the percentage of folks that we projected would go out to the ballot. Do you think that is because of media resources? I mean, it's a lot cheaper to have a couple of data specialists sitting in an office than lots of reporters out on the ground talking to people. What, why, why were media outlets not in counties like that finding out what was going on? Well, it's entirely true that we have seen a dwindling of, uh, of resources when the newsrooms, but I, I really see that as an excuse. There's no reason why we shouldn't be covering the communities we serve, and we actually should look at, and we are looking at, in particular in my newsroom, ways that we can still cover the communities we serve with the resources we have, and maybe looking at non-traditional ways of doing that. Maybe not the traditional way of having uh, someone as a bureau chief in a specific area, but maybe taking a look at um, using different forms of we technology to get the community to talk to us and then from there being able to have people go out. There are lots of different ways to do this and we're just starting to tap into that. Last point I would make is I also don't think it's just about the media companies. I think yes. it's also about the audience yep. as well. I mean, the New York Times, did, it wasn't a resource issue and we did a lot of stories from these white working class Trump voter communities but were they as well read? Were they as prominently displayed in your Facebook feed? Probably not. And, and so, were they being read by the people that the stories were about? That's, mm. that's a good question too. I mean, I think that a lot of this gets beyond, I don't think a lot of journalists sort of recognize the degree to which the information streams were so bifurcated by partisanship until after the election. So there's a whole bunch of things going on. It wasn't just the fault of sort of media and reporters. Mm. Um, Lee, in On Doubt, which is being re-released next month, you wrote about your fascination with 2008 vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin and her astonishing and unwavering self-belief. You said, I envied Palin's chutzpah. Where did it come from? It certainly wasn't based on relevant experience. Was it because she genuinely possessed such confidence or was it because in our society to publicly admit doubt is becoming impossible? Was Sarah Palin said to us as a warning from the political gods that someone with zero <laughs> credentials and all the self-belief in the world was coming for us and there was nothing we could do? It just, it, it is incredible, I reckon, to, and I mean, it's a question of how far back you want to go, to just look back and see where these sort of various seeds were planted and mm. then how they've come to fruition. Um, the, I mean, Trump is just Palin on steroids, but... I think um, the other thing that really sticks with me was this quote that was in a Ron, Ron Susskind article for, um, I think it was maybe the New York Times magazine or New York magazine, um, where it was a sort of profile from within the Bush administration and George Bush's reliance on gut for decision making rather than evidence. And there was an official quoted in it who was anonymous at the time but was subsequently revealed to be Karl Rove, Bush's chief of staff. And he said something like, you know, you journalists, you just don't get it. Um, you people in there, and he used the term reality-based community, are out there chasing around after facts. And what you don't understand is that we create the realities now. And while you're out there chasing around after your facts, we're just going to create new realities and keep creating them. And that's, you know, how we built our empire. And at the time when this article came out, in, that was when I was in Washington, everyone, it was just like, 
Oh <laughs> my god. Um, and then now people wouldn't have believed it though. No, they? it just seems so sort of Machiavellian mm. and out there. But of course, you know, nearly a decade on, you know, the, this era of fake news and, and of you know, the thing that amazes me, I think, in this era is the um, just people don't even feel the need to hide that they're making stuff up or that they're telling something that's untrue or spinning something. They don't even attempt to make it seem um, like the truth. And so with those comments from Karl Rove, you can sort of look back at that now and it looks remarkably prescient that he identified mm. that that was the way that we were going. I mean, you look at... Um, Sean Spicer after the Trump inauguration, it's the biggest crowd period. Like, <laughs> dude, that is demonstrably, provably untrue. And it's just astonishing to see somebody stand up there and say that, you yeah. know, as if, as if it were true. But they're creating a situation where the story is about the fact that they're telling an untruth, not yeah. about the other things that are going on. But the thing that I find rattling as a journalist is that even when you expose untruths now, it doesn't seem to have that much impact. And mm. so that's what's really disturbing. Why do you think that... <coughs> That's the case, Damien? Well, I think part of what ha what's happened is that for those who are Trump supporters or defenders, they no longer are talking about Trump, they're talking about the reaction to Trump. Mm -hmm. And so you can say, this crowd, you're demonstrably inaccurate, and they'll say, oh God, you're making much too much of this. The media is just out to get this guy. And then it quickly becomes a conversation about the media coverage as opposed to the actual fact. Mm -hmm. And so like, you're, you're no longer talking about the same thing. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what's happening increasingly. And both sides are guilty of that in the current climate. I think so, but I do think that, you know, the, um, I don't know, I mean, I think that to some degree, no matter what, if you're, if you're criticizing Trump, you're going to be seen by a certain crowd as being automatically against him, and so mm. that, again, you're no longer having the conversation about Trump, so it's a way to move the conversation off of the actual subject at hand. Right. Um, David, you've been, when you've been intimately observing politics for a long time, mm -hmm. as I have too, it can occasionally start to feel like, um, you know, you've seen it all before, and yeah. that you know you can become unshockable. How is your shockometer travelling um, in 2017? Yeah, I, <laughs> still I was, feeling unshockable. <laughs> I was pretty sad when Tony Abbott got kicked out, <laughs> and that was sort of yeah. like I, I thought, oh, you only get one Tony Abbott, but this is just <laughs> <laughs> Trump has just been like a rolling mall mm. of every day. It's quite a, um, as a cartoonist, you sort of have to pick and choose different issues generally, but Trump has just given all cartoonists and satirists um, just every day you can do something. You can wake up and basically I wake up in the morning and go, what has he done today? Yeah. And I get told by the editor, you know, you've got to do something on electricity prices or something, you know, get away from Trump, but it's just, there's so much stuff there. How does that feel? That's exciting. Having that macabre joy yeah. in this horror <laughs> show that's coming on. Well, it's amazing for me. I hate to be... Um, it'd be great for an American mm. political cartoonist because they get to drive down into, drill down into mm. the policy and stuff like that, which we take a much broader view and it's sort mm. of a bit more slapstick. But he sort of allows you to be as savage as, as you want because he is so out there. Mm. Yeah. Has he, have you ever seen anything like him before? In no, no, never. No. no, it's incredible. And I, I remember when they were... Um, they were saying, oh, yeah, there's Nixon parallels, all this sort of stuff. And I, you know, you watch a lot of documentaries, mm. you study a lot of stuff, and mm. there's just been nothing like it. It's incredible for me. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we're still trying to work out how it happened, but since it happened, you know, we've got a new reality to deal with. Um, Damien, the New York Times has famously seen subscriptions go through the roof. <laughs> um, my own organisation, HuffPost, we have a new editor-in-chief, Lydia Polgreen, who yes, you've worked friend. with. Yes. Um, she... Um, under her leadership, HuffPost is embarking on a nationwide US tour where they're partnering with local media outlets to um, amplify their content. 
and is remodelling itself in a sort of, as, as Lydia describes it, as a digital tabloid. Writing, she says, you know, for our audience, not about our audience. Has the Trump phenomenon and the widespread sort of failure to anticipate it led to real changes in your view in the way journalism operates in the US or is it more of a rhetorical change? No, I mean, I, I think the New York Times, uh, I mean, like I said, we covered some of these subjects pretty in depth before. I think now we're covering them even more intensely and making sure that people see them. <laughs> and so I think that's part of it. You know, we had a story recently that was this really wonderful narrative um, by Sabrina Tavernese of this man who had been in a car with someone who had put swastikas on a mosque and the mosque forgiving this man. And it was this story from a part of the country that the New York Times wouldn't be thought of as to spend much time with, but Sabrina, who's actually a friend of Lydia's and a friend of mine, did this really wonderful in-depth story that created was a sense of nuance and e for each character. And so I think that kind of story, which probably we did but didn't do enough of before, we're doing a lot more mm -hmm. of. And I think across the media too, I mean, to some degree, Trump has reinvigorated the passion for journalism, the passion for both accountability journalism, but also I think the taste for kind of nuanced character-driven journalism too, or at least I hope so. And what about tone? We were talking, Lee, just before the panel started about um, calling the president a liar. And look, before the campaign, HuffPost put an addendum on every story about Donald Trump describing him as a serial liar, which was a controversial move at the time. But you, you were saying that you've never actively described a politician as a liar on air before, but now, yeah. now you do. I mean, I've interviewed people and said, you know, is this a yes. lie or is this dishonest? But I think with Trump, you know, the thing that amazes me is that in a question, you know, say to our foreign minister or our prime <coughs> minister, I will say, um, you know, if he makes a decision to um, send troops into war and he asks for an Australian commitment, how could we possibly rely on the judgment of a serial liar and narcissist and <coughs> blah, 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 erratic narcissist or things like that, which um, it amazes me that I would use in journalism language like that, and I do because I think it's objectively and demonstrably true. I think that is an accurate description of what Donald Trump is like. I think any clear-headed um, analysis of his behaviour, his statements, you would reach that conclusion. Um, and I think journalists need to be... Um, not scared to call things out for what they mm. actually are. I think there's a difference, the difference between me saying that um, about him and, and you know not about some others. Like I, there's plenty of politicians I think are narcissists. <laughs> the difference is I don't have the facts. That's not my opinion. Name names right now. No, <laughs> that's my opinion. Yeah. It's not a fact. I think with him it's a demonstrable fact. Mm. Um, and so that that's sort of a different. Um, I mean, what's interesting, right, is the word liar implies motive too it's not just yes. that the fact is inaccurate they haven't just made a mistake yeah, yeah and so mm. it's not a mistake and so i mean the new york times has called him a liar as well and like that conversation the, the last time i remember a really intense internal conversation in the times about a single word was whether or not to call the war in iraq a civil war mm -hmm. and right. so like we're very careful with individual yeah. words yeah. and the fact that that word liar has appeared in the new york times repeatedly in mm. reference to trump is mm. a signal mm. of just how severe it is mm. do you think that we'd be able to, like, that kind of rhetoric and using that about the US, how would it go down if we started calling out our politicians in a similar manner here? I mean, I if they were um, serially lying, then mm. you would. Mm. Um, I think they do. I mean, yeah. they've... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> serially <laughs> lie or get called out? They get called out and it's serially yeah. lie. But it's yeah. a difference of... Um, like, say, for example, in the last election campaign, I did an interview with Bill Shorten about the Medicare um, thing where they claimed that the Liberal Party was going to privatise Medicare. And I would say that mm. I substantially demolished 
and that argument because yes. it wasn't mm. factually, you know, accurate. Um, they still kept using it, not on your program. Kept, no, but they did keep, <laughs> they did using, keep using it, using that's it. right. And it did make an impact, even though it was mm. demonstrably untrue. The Liberal Party did not go to the election with a policy to privatise Medicare. <coughs> now, the difference, why, why I think it's difficult to call that an outright lie is because um, the Labor Party was saying, okay, well, here is they have a plan to privatise backroom operations and they had you know, a whole, whole suite of things that they said that is indication that the Liberal Party intends to you know, take this step. So from their perspective mm. and people who you know, believed that, believed it be, to be true, you know, like they weren't actively out there saying something that was, you know, they knew to be demonstrably mm. untrue. That was sort of, I guess, um, you know, just a political tool. Where it maybe stepped, that behaviour stepped over the line was, robocalls to voters to say the Liberal mm. Party is privatising Medicare. I mean, that is a demonstrable lie. It's not a, it's not a question of spin or an interpretation mm. um, of the facts. So politicians have always chosen to um, selectively highlight facts that, um, you know, back their case or skew things subtly. Um, but I think the sort of outright now, you know, where it's like we say that black is white and we just argue that black is white even though we can all see it's black. I think that is sort of a bit different. Do you think the egregious misuse of the phrase fake news by politicians to describe stories they don't like, which was very fashionable six months mm. ago and, you know, I think the Treasurer even used it a couple of times. Has that died off a bit, have you noticed? Um, or are they still throwing it around? Nobody said it to me um, in interviews. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, it certainly is it's a device that they reach for just to discredit something. But, I mean, they do it... You know, the Prime Minister was doing it to me on Monday night on the program when he was saying, oh, I know you don't care about this, Lee, or mm. you don't care about mm -hmm. policy, yeah. or... You're not interested. Um, you're in not interested. Yeah. The ABC doesn't care about power prices or whatever. Like, yeah. it, and I don't like to go down that path because then it just wastes time. I don't want to talk about the ABC. I want to talk yeah. about power prices. Yeah. So um, they do, it's just all part of their arsenal of you know, yeah. ways they try to divert things. Okay. Yeah. Okay, this is going to seem like a screeching gear change. Because I want to talk about white supremacy for a, a few minutes, because we, we've got a lot of time to examine this. Um, Tonya, it's been horrifying to watch the events um, in Charleston and their aftermath in the last few weeks, even from the other side of the world. I can't imagine what it's like to watch it up close. Um, could you talk to us about how closely linked you think the current resurgence in far-right activism is to Trump's election? Did he create the conditions for this, or did the conditions facilitate his ascension? Well, I haven't reported on this, but I've followed it pretty closely. Yeah. And um, no, I definitely think that this was, uh, this was something that's, that's on the under, underbelly of America for quite some time. But uh, I do believe that Trump has um, made them feel emboldened to, to come forward. I mean, it was absolutely amazing, right, Charlottesville, to see mm. people, their full faces, walking through the streets, mm. saying, this is who I am. Um, I will tell you, the weekend that that happened, I was following it, and um, just as a person of color from the United States, I felt completely dejected and upset and thinking where we would go next. But then, very quickly, the next weekend, in Boston, Massachusetts, there was mm. um, a white supremacist rally, and people came out in huge numbers to overpower them in a way where they couldn't even get their message out. Mm. And the same thing happened um, in California, in my neck of the woods, while we've been here. Uh, there was going to be a rally, and then they canceled the rally. And then folks from, I guess you would say, the other side, or, or regular folks, came out to make certain that they wouldn't have a voice, just in case this was a tactic to say we're canceling it, and then 
going out there anyway. Mm. So I do actually have hope for humankind that we are not going back to the 50s and 60s now because it really feels that way. But um, I do think now that we've seen it, we can't unsee it. And so we know that that element is there. How we will cover it, uh, the other sides of it, we're not seeing, unlike the 60s where there was the civil rights movement, peaceful protest, we're not seeing that. The rise of Antifa, which is the other side of it, um, and the violence that's ensuing at these different rallies from both sides, and really, uh, it's an interesting place to be. Mm. Um, David, we're currently experiencing our own mm. political discussion around how we memorialise our historical figures, yeah. you know, appropriately in a more truthful way. We have a growing movement to change the date of Australia Day. Mm. Do you, just in your general observations about um, political discourse and public discourse, do you sense any sort of dangerous US-style backlash to these movements uh, growing? If anything, or? it feels like we're further behind. Like, you know, they're already pulling statues down mm. in the States. If they did that here, I think they'd be up... Well, there is already, mm. you know, you've got Malcolm coming out and sort of saying it's un-Australian people. You know, all, mm. all the Liberal politicians are coming out. And we're just not willing... We don't even broach the subject really. Like, I, um, who was it? Dan Sultan was on the other day saying, you know, we feel terrible. This is, you know, mm. Australia Day, it's racist. So I think, and they can't really have that conversation here without getting shouted down. Mm. It's quite, it's, feels kind of like we're actually behind the states, even in some respects. Yep. Okay. Mm. Um, Damien, you're in a unique position amongst us with a relatively fresh pair of eyes on Australian politics and having just, you know, yeah. uh -oh. been very released <laughs> <and> recently <laughs> reporting in the US. What's your take on the quality and tone of Australian political debate? Do you, you know, see things that remind you of home? Uh, I do. I mean, I think it's interesting the degree to which conversations in the US do kind of get imported here, like this conversation mm. around statues and history. Like, I don't think I fully expected that kind of mm. thing, because they are very distinct countries with very distinct histories. And even these statues in the US have a very distinct sort of particular yeah. history within when they were constructed. Um, but then I also do find, I mean, to me, like one of the most significant differences between the United States and Australia is the relationship to government. And so the conversations here are about what government can and will do as opposed to is government good or bad. Mm. And so, you know, Trump is the product in part of decades of saying we hate government. Mm. And um, it's, just, it's a different conversation than the one I see here. And it's also more personalized in the United States too, right? So the individual president has more power and is seen as more of a representation of America, whether that's Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Whereas here, as a former prime minister said to me, you know, you just vote out the person. It's mm. more about the government. The prime minister doesn't mean as much. So uh, that those two things I think are interesting. I mean, I do think that here there's actually a lot more uh, apathy and frustration with government and democracy than may be mm. measured. Um, because you have compulsory voting. I mean, to some degree, right. turnout in the United States mm. is a measure of how Americans feel about their democracy. I see American democracy as in crisis, and I have for a long time. Um, here, it's harder to sort of see, but if you talk to young people in particular, they, if you said tomorrow we don't have compulsory voting, mm. 18 to 29-year-olds, how many of them would vote? I don't know. Well, we're possibly about to find out. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. That's true, too. You know, that could be interesting. Yeah. Um, Lee, do you think you have to change the way you do journalism or that the rest of us need to change the way we do journalism in light of all of this? Look, um, I feel like I only know one way to do journalism and that I have a very narrow skill set. Um, it's sort of different now because I'm in the studio all the time, but basically all I know how to do is go and talk to people, hear what they're saying, 
write a story about it. Like that's that my skill set. <laughs> um, and so, and then now in my current role, because I'm, I'm not out on the road reporting, um, I you know study, I guess, what other people are reporting. I look at what the person I'm interviewing is saying. I try to assess what they're saying against objective truth, like facts and you know actual reports and various things. And then I try to um, test you know what they're saying and and hold them to account on that. And and I. I'm a journalist because I believe that what the truth is, is, you know, important. Yeah. And so that's the only way that I know how to do it. So what disturbs me is if I'm doing that and someone is exposed as telling lies or being misleading or whatever, and it doesn't make any difference, mm. I find that really disturbing. Because right. I think that's the only way I know how to do it and that's the only value I think I can add to the public mm. debate is trying to look at you know, trying to apply reason and logic and, you know, trusting that if presented with those things, the public will, you know, form certain judgments. And so if we're moving to a model that's different to that, where it's, I don't know, more opinion-based or whatever, I don't know how to do that. Mm. Um, and I'm not interested in doing that. I'm, I'm so not interested in having to be on some chat show where I'm shouting in one corner and someone's <laughs> shouting in the other corner. Like, I just find that so tedious. And so... Um, I'm still just trying to do do it as I've always done it, but um, I am rattled by, and, and I feel like all of my analytic tools mm. are not so useful now because, um, say for example with Trump, I thought Trump wouldn't win the election, not because I didn't know there was anger in the United States, because when I was there, I was there all the time going into the Midwest and, and um, Pennsylvania and various places that were formerly prosperous, where towns had lost industries or factories, and there was this sort of anger and, and um, you know, discontent. I saw that all the time. And so I could only imagine, you know, by 2016, how much that had manifested. I also knew from my time there and watching it unfold that Americans were sick of business as usual. Mm. And I sort of thought, geez, nothing says business as usual as much as Hillary Clinton, mm. as much as the Clintons. But I thought that they wouldn't elect Trump, nonetheless. I thought they wouldn't elect him because when I was there, I was really struck by how much reverence Americans had for the office of the presidency and for their own history. And I had huge regard for American values and mm. how much ordinary Americans believed in, in certain values, you know, right from just sort of ordinary things like manners and being polite through to, you know, freedom and the public's right to know and all these sort of great, you know, aspirational, the best of democracy. And if I was there in the Bush era, which everyone thought, you know, George W. Bush, which everyone thought was you know, he was divisive. People are probably pining for that now. Yeah, <laughs> but he, even when Bush was there, I think people, even if you didn't like Bush, there was still a certain reverence for the office and that the person in the office was meant to embody the best of mm. America's ideals. And Trump was just so demonstrably awful that I thought, how could they put a person with these personal qualities into this office that they hold in such high regard? So I thought at the end of the day, people would be angry, but that there was no way that they could right. put him in the job. Clearly, I, I underestimated how yeah. angry people actually were. Yeah. I think the other part that I think, you know, we underestimated was the degree to which Americans were willing to take a chance, to yes. really take a risk. I mean, this yes. was a gamble. Yeah. Like, a lot of people Huge who risk. voted for him yeah. recognized this is a big risk, but you know what? I mean, this is what we have to do. And, like, one of the statistics that I think is important to kind of look at the lens through which American politics is viewed by most Americans is that more than 90% of Americans think Congress is failing. So their vote on Washington is, you guys are fucking up. And so if you go into politics and you look at American politics through that lens, Trump starts to make more sense. Mm. And I don't think that American journalism has always really done that. Do you guys think he'll get another term? This is where you're moving into opinion. I know. <laughs> it's like it's really difficult to, yeah. yeah. It's, it's difficult to say. 
It's, yeah. it's very difficult to say. We're nine months into the presidency, and look how much has happened. I mean, we can't really, this goes back to what Damien said about the uh, New York Times having that clicker. There's no way for us to look into the future and really say what will happen. Mm. I mean, part of the reason it's such a crazy, I mean, just journalistically, such a great story, is we have no idea what's, what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, we didn't know that he was going to win, and now you have this giant drama that's playing out where you don't know what the final act is. Mm. And so, you know, part of the reason that people are paying closer attention to journalism is this is an enormous global drama with enormous consequences, and we don't know how it will end. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you like this podcast, there are three things you can do to help us. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com forward slash subscribe. Rate us on iTunes. Or send us a few dollars to keep it going at walkleys.com forward slash donate. This podcast was produced with help from freelance journalist and fabulous intern Courtney Hunter in Sydney, Australia. Thanks for listening.